Sorry for everybody listening. Little technical difficulties, but nothing we can't do. It's Apollo 13, this shit, which we've done before. Audio is just glitching in and out, and I, I, I can hear it well, but I know it won't come up well on the podcast, and... I don't want to. I don't want to steal an hour of your time and then not have it be a good podcast. But that's not a worry because we're back. So let's just jump back into it with my series of of stupid, uninformed questions. Is so is military police? Is that just? And I know this sounds like the dumbest question, but please humor me. Is that really just like police for the military? Like, because you get right. Who do you call? Right. If some if if normal yeah. everyday human interactions are popping off, like scuffles yeah. or abuse or drawing a weapon like because that happens we have everyday life if i do that the police come to this cul-de-sac but then do you just you just have to have your own police force for the military right that's exactly what it was it's all Um, okay as they indicated earlier um if you were on a special assignment or your assignment took you into a uh, convoy escort or you were patrolling one of the various villages, whatever, uh, pertaining to Vietnam again, and I'm sure that it's pretty much the same thing, Afghanistan, Iraq, um, you would be doing whatever was necessary to preserve law and order as far as the GIs, the, the Army, uh, military personnel were concerned. He had no authority whatsoever over the, over the civilian nationals. Absolutely, they could do whatever they wanted to do right in front of you, and there was nothing you could do. If you had what we used to call a combined patrol, and we did that a lot, to where you would have the uh, an American military policeman, a Vietnamese national police, or as I indicated, the white mice, or the Vietnamese South Vietnamese. Um, military police, the QCs, they would take action mm-hmm. against the, the Vietnamese nationals. But the, the, the victim Novembers, the Vietnamese nationals could do whatever they wanted in front of you. You had, unless they were on a military installation, American military installation, then you had authority over them. But once you left that author- that uh, installation, it was, uh, they were, whatever they wanted, they could do. Yeah. That's, so, do you have any stories from from your time in Vietnam specifically about just being in a... I mean, I, I know you're just explaining... And for everyone listening, um, we just went through some stuff, but the audio is messed up, so... Um, but you were saying that, you know, they kind of used you as just, like, they need someone here, they need a body there, they just kind of took you and moved you all around. But specific to being an MP, do you have any, do you have any good stories? Because, let me pull it up, you... Uh, let me minimize this. You sent me some pictures. You told me to email them back to you, and I completely forgot until just I, now. I, took it. I got that squared away. Oh, you did? Okay. Well, I'm going to pull up the pictures now for everybody uh, watching. And um, Uh-oh. yeah, yeah. Do you mind just do you mind walking me through them? There's no there's no structure to this podcast. Sure. If you can't tell, it's just whatever we want. So the first one is um, it's uh, I believe it's in the order you sent me. So it's it's you with a it looks like an APC behind you. That's well. I can't see the picture, but I'm just going to go by what you're saying. That's actually called a V100, a Victor Commando 100. It's a convoy escort vehicle, okay. and it the uh, M60 machine guns, 40 millimeter um, grenade launchers on it, and they were they were loud beyond belief. I mean, you had to wear a headset and everything with the microphone. Uh, to be heard uh, so you can hear your, your commander and, and so on. And they were used to escort convoys because they were so heavily armed. Uh, you could also transport uh, troops in them because they were heavily armed. Uh-huh. Um, it's different from APC because there's no front loading. Um, like a tr- and it's not a track vehicle either, as uh-huh. you can see. It's so making sure that you can see the ones I'm seeing. The second one, um, ARVN BCT. Uh, I don't think that's you. There's a bunch of marching guys, not marching. And it, there's a big crowd of people moving Those, through like the, fields. That that photograph was taken on the way to where. And I got to be honest with you, I have no idea where we were going. It as a spec four, an E four. <laughs> you're you're right up there with whale poop. You you are just you go and you do as you're told. Yeah, in every spec four. I'll guarantee you can relate to that. Okay, where are we going? You don't need to know. You'll just get there. Yeah. And I was on that V100. I was the uh, rear gunner on that V100, and we were headed somewhere. And as we passed 
that group of ARVN, which stands for Army, Army of the Republic of Vietnam, ARVN. Those, my best guess, because they've got numbers on their helmet, mm-hmm. were basic trainees, and they were probably just marching someplace, going off to train to do something. And we passed them. And it was kind of interesting, because you could see they're smiling and waving yeah, and, and yeah. so on. And, and for the most part, the South Vietnamese that we encountered uh, were, were pretty decent people. I mean, they were just like anybody else. They just want to live their life and uh, go about their business without being told what to do every second of the day. Yeah. That's the thing is they all look like kids. Yeah, and they're all smiling. Like You notice the, an interesting thing about that is that they're carrying M-16s. Early in the war, General uh, Westmoreland would not allow the, the South Vietnamese um, to use M-16s, which was a detriment because the M-16 was a much better weapon than the uh, M1 carbines that they were using. <laughs> or, or if you can picture a, a guy who's the average height of a, a South Vietnamese is probably about 5'6", five, 5'7", five, somewhere in there, and he's carrying either an M1 Garand from World War II Korea mm-hmm. or an M14 that was later issued. Uh, the, the rifle's almost as big as he was. And it was not really conducive to good fighting techniques and what, but not when the rifle that you're carrying weighs so much more. I mean, these are not huge people. South Vietnamese are not gigantic people. Yeah. And what was the move that eventually led to them giving them M16s? Was it just the realization that it's better to have them well-armed? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I think so. You know, I read a whole history about that, and it was just uh, somebody persuaded General Westmoreland that, hey, look... These guys were on our side. I think initially, did Westmoreland trust all these guys? Did we trust all these guys? Sure, yeah. There were some that I questioned. Um, but he came to the realization that if we are going to turn the war over to the South Vietnamese, the Arvins, that they're going to have to have the best equipment possible. And the M1 carbines from World War II and, and Korea and the M1 Grands and the M14s were not the best weapons available especially for jungle fighting yeah yeah it makes sense i get in all of my military genius right um the third one that's you your hair looking great looking like a total stud hair arms out moffat yeah man it's a am i am i in khakis um it looks like it it's black and white yeah Yeah, that's um, so I'm not in fatigues. Um, well, I don't know any proper terminology. It, you have MP on your... I'm trying to pull them up on my phone so I can show you which photos okay, I'm looking at. Okay, I know where that is. That was taken at Fort Sill, Oklahoma uh, when I got back from Vietnam. Okay. Uh, my first duty station was Fort Eustis, Virginia, and then I eventually was transferred to uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, outside of Lawton, um, home of the artillery and so on. And that, that was uh, interesting because it was such a huge base, uh, obviously, we were training artillery, that uh, we actually had uh, helicopter patrols, which I got I was fortunate enough to uh, go on. And that was a lot of fun. But right there, that is just a routine uh, patrol around Fort Sill in 1973, probably. There you go. Yeah, yeah that's me. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're 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 Apollo thirteening this for anyone listening. I have the images pulled up yeah. on my laptop, and I'm showing Ken via FaceTime through my laptop. But yes, yeah, so that's the one we're on there right now. Go. Yeah, dude, dude, you must have had point. to you must have had to beat the women off you, man. Hey, I'm humble. Yeah, hey, you know it's a it's a blessing and a curse, right? It's it's there you go. That's, there you go. That's why they sent you over to Vietnam because all the, the all those all the older guys in America were like, we need to get this asshole out of here. He's stealing all the tail, so they tossed you out of the country. It all makes perfect sense now. <laughs> it all it all comes together. It all comes together. All right, I've got this one up now. Oh my goodness, that uh, was my first day in Vietnam. We landed at Da Nang. Um, and I'll tell you, um, Tommy, it, it was kind of like a baptism of fire. We left uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, went to Japan, uh, where we refueled or whatever, and we got off the airplane and walking into the uh, um, terminal, people don't realize that Japan is cold. 
And okay. I mean, we're here in these jungle, these very lightweight jungle fatigues, and we got off the plane, and it's 20 degrees, 30 degrees out there, and we are cold. Get into the terminal, okay, things warm up. You get back on the plane. Your next stop is Da Nang. Pull up, and um, they open the door, and it's like the air conditioning is just sucked immediately out of the airplane and you are in a hundred degree heat, a hundred percent humidity. And you are just sitting in those seats, sweltering guy comes on the airplane. He was an air force guy comes on the airplane and he says, all right, I, I want, um, and I won't use the exact terminology because women may be listening. He goes, I want every single one of you off this plane. Now I want you on those buses. Now, no talking, just move it, move it, move it. And we're like, what's going on? And come to find out that the DC had rocketed the airbase just not long before we got there. So they didn't want any dilly dallying around. You guys get off this plane, get on that bus, we're going to get out of here. So we get on the bus, and, and, and I'm sure that everybody that, you know, most people that served in Vietnam can relate to this. They had these steel grates, like wire grates over the windows. We're like, what's this for? And the guy said, well, that's to keep the kids or the Viet Cong from throwing. It's, so hot on the buses the windows had to be down that's so uh it was so hot that the grates are to keep the Viet Cong or the kids from throwing hand grenades or other uh, explosive devices through the windows well then it turns out that the kid they they learned how to wire fish hooks to the hand grenades so what they would do was that they would run alongside of the, the bus and with the fish hook hook it onto the, the window pull the pin boom the kid's gone boom grenade goes off so it, you ask about were there things that kind of made you think well here you are your plane just lands and now all this stuff is coming to uh, the reality of, of where you are and what you're going to go through jesus that's 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 terrifying and it seems like but it seems like that always hat right always again in all of my military expertise but it seems like when we go when we act as an occupying force they're just these like super unpredictable novel ways that they wage warfare. Like who the hell could predict yeah. fish hooks on yeah. grenades? Yeah, um, they were a uh, resilient uh, people. They'd been fighting uh, the French. They fought the Japanese uh, World War Two. They fought the French, and, and now um, you know for the the sake of uh, unifying unifying in their minds. Uh, turning South Vietnam into a communist country, uh, they came up with ways to do it. Yeah. That... Uh, <laughs> were you going to say something? Well, they believed, and, you know, and rightfully so, you can kind of look at this from a standpoint, uh, this is their country, they're, you know, they're fighting for what their cause is. Our cause was to present prevent South Vietnam from falling into the hands of the communism, the domino theory. Um, so goes Vietnam, goes, so goes Southeast Asia. Um, one of the interesting things that was written about that, and I cannot remember who did this, but I've read a lot about it, was that while the American military did not lose the war in Vietnam, the United States government, the United States Congress, um, was responsible for us losing. And, I, and a lot of us that served there puts the blame directly on Lyndon Baines Johnson, who stated he did not want to be the first president to lose anything to, a communist, to communism, and Robert McNamara, whose rules of engagement were so restrictive, you couldn't hit certain missile sites because they were within proximity to a, a hospital, a school, a this or that. So what the NVA would do, the North Vietnamese Army would do, was put uh, anti-aircraft missile sites on top of public buildings, knowing good and well that we weren't allowed to uh, take them out. So they were, they were very smart about doing stuff like that, and they played the American media very well. And the American media played into because it's a bunch of leftists played into the hands of the, the South Vietnamese, uh, the communist North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. And so we had to fight not only members of Congress, we had to fight the news media and we had to fight the enemy as well, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. So it was, it was a tough battle. And yeah. When you have your own political forces against you, it was tough. Yeah. It was tough. Yeah. Right. It's like, Right, it's like if you have a wife or a best friend, oftentimes like you can take on the whole world as long as you have that person at home that's like got your back. But if the person that has your back isn't with you, 
well, then it's hard to do anything, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Lyndon yeah. Johnson. Lyndon Johnson once made the comment that uh, they can't bomb an outhouse unless they get my approval. Yeah. And the American military, and it's like, okay. Yeah. Why don't it, we just walk home? Yeah. If you're not going to let us, let us come home. Yeah. Yeah. No, LBJ was, um, you know, all respect to the office, but LBJ was a huge pussy. He uh, he was so obsessed with his image, right? All he want, he great society. It's yep. and it was less about what's actually going on so much as how am I being perceived? Am I being perceived as the glorious leader? And this is all speculation and just projection. But like, I mean, you got to imagine that although its own character flaw, probably also coming from your tailing, you know, Jackie and JFK, right? Just the everyone loves them, and then as you got this big doughy baby face lbj who used to you know take his dick out on air force one like people hated him and now people are chanting on college campuses you know hey hey lbj how many kids did you kill today a lot less a lot less of a commander and more of a i don't know a diva well he was he was actually doing a two-front war he had vietnam and as you alluded to he had the great society Mm -hmm. and i personally believe that the Great Society was more important to him than Vietnam. Yeah. If that's the case, Mr. President, then why do we continue to send thousands of troops to Vietnam? Yeah. Um, John Kennedy, President Kennedy, there is uh, credible information that he was in the process of pulling the American advisors and the American troops out of Vietnam. He, he, he realized the futility of the direction that we were going unless you're going to do a full all-out effort, yeah. a la World War II. Yeah. And John Kennedy was in the process of pulling these advisors out, and I think that when he was assassinated, um, that Lyndon Johnson's advisor said, you know, we can't lose Vietnam to the communists. Yeah. That would really tarnish your legacy. Yeah. So here he is. And so... The, the, the Gulf of Tonkin, historians are going to debate that forever, but it appears that at least one of the incidents with the, uh, I can't remember if it was the Turner or the Maddox, whichever one was first, but the second yeah. incident yeah. of torpedo was, was contrived. Yeah. How do I get American troops in Vietnam? Well, they attacked us, so let's go get them. Yeah, right. They're looking for that Pearl Harbor, that yeah, yeah. USS Maine. They're just looking for anything, right? Give them a reason. Give me a reason. And it's, yeah, I mean, that's a whole rabbit hole for another episode, but it's like, yeah, how much of that was based on like, hey, man, there's some money to be made there, right? There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of weapons to be sold there. Yeah. I mean, think heroin coming back in body bags. You're telling me that someone's not looking at that and going, this heroin's being sold regardless if we like it or not. Might as well skim some Mm -hmm. off the top. Again. My 30,000-foot view as a 30-year-old in 2020 with no military experience. I'm obviously speaking in generality, gen, generalities, in broad brushes, and it's, you know, I'm putting my own twist on it, so not entirely unbiased. But um, jump to the, <laughs> yeah, this one, the one I told you, as they're like, you, you know, this looks like the beginning of a 1970s porn. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> badass mustache, Uh-oh. tactical super troopers mustache. That is a mean mustache. Well, I was actually, that's when, after I got out of the Army, I went to work as a police officer in Oakland. And yeah. um, my fiance at the time told me, you're just too young. You just look too young. You need to grow a mustache. And that's the only reason I did it. I had no real desire. So I grew a mustache. And um, it, it was, you know, there were there was actually interesting people asked me about that um, going from Vietnam to Oakland. And, I, and my standard response is there were times I couldn't tell you which was worse. But, really? Um, uh, it was. It was. Yeah. Well, the how, nickname for how, Oakland at the time. So I was going to say, ahead. how so? Well, the nickname for Oakland at the time was Crokeland because they had so many homicides. Uh, it was just uh, you know homicide uh, two or three a day at, at, at one point. Um, and it literally, there were times when Oakland was scarier than at times in Vietnam. Um, you expected it out of a war. Yeah. You expect people to, or to act a certain way. You don't expect people in a civilized society to conduct yourself like complete animals. And yeah. that's what a lot of the people up were. Um, 
But it, it was interesting too. Um, you know, I had uh, some people ask me yesterday, and typically Vietnam veterans uh, really don't get into this, but th- then they wanted to know uh, about the dead people that you saw and so on and so how did that affect you did you think about it and you know my first reaction was you know when i when i saw a dead american it hit me more than when i saw a dead Viet Cong or when i saw a dead south vietnamese um especially the Viet Cong. i was like man okay yeah who cares yeah uh the enemy uh a dead South Vietnamese soldier, you feel a little bit sorry, but it, it doesn't hit you the way it does an American. Hmm. Uh, and and, and I'm, anybody that served there can tell you the same yeah. thing. You just don't have that same empathy yeah. for that for that, that dead American. Yeah. I was, I was going to say... Uh, but years later... No, go on. But, but years later, if I can't... It's interesting now in, in uh, you know, in reflection, you, you think about all of them and it just reminds you of how fragile life is yeah. that you don't get a do-over. And we see these knuckleheads out there doing stuff that you know is going to lead to their demise. And you sit back and you think, if you only had the opportunity to really go forward and think about what you're doing and, and just get your head out of your duffel bag and realize that you're headed for destruction. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's really just, it's once it's done, it's done. It's just game over. Peace. It is finished. Goodbye. It's yeah. It yeah. I was going to say what you said about Oakland being Crokeland. My, uh, my best friend lives in Baltimore and, uh, we, we, and I lived in Atlanta. Oh, together. Well, yeah. Well. He and I lived in Atlanta together, middle school, high school, but uh, he's in Baltimore now. And whenever I go up, he's always like, it, "It's not Baltimore, Maryland. It's Bodymore, Murderland." And uh, they have these apps on their phone, and it will it will alert you when there's a homicide nearby. And we'd be up there. It's constantly going. On. Oh, dude, it's terrifying. It's constantly going on. It's terrifying. It's a drinking game. It bing, and it's like man stabbed in the neck, point seven miles away, and it's like, oh yeah, and it's just like. It's like, no wonder they're drinking. It's like, how else do you deal with this? I'll just be having... When I'm there, I'm always so anxious, but they have, like, three doors on their apartment, so it's okay. But, like, damn, when they're there... Because, like, I I know we're going off on a tangent. This has nothing to do with Vietnam, but, like, I remember... I remember, like, one time I just wanted to, like, walk down the street to get these, like, gummies at this gas station. They had, like, CBD gummies, right, for it makes you relax. And, um... I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go get these. And uh, they were like, don't go alone. And I thought they were fucking with me because it was like 2 p.m. on like a Wednesday, sunny. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, and I started to get up to go. And they like paused the TV and they're like, all right, we'll, like, we'll walk together. And I was like, really? And they looked at me just dead serious. And they're like, yes. And to me, it was just like, it was like right now. It was just like a sunny day. It's like an autumn day. We just like walked there. And they're like, do not walk alone. And I was like, Jesus. But yeah, a little side tangent. Um, Let's go to the next sure. next photo. Is uh, here you go. Can you see it all right? Uh, I'm... Yeah, that that's the V one hundred. That's yeah. the Victor Commando convoy escort vehicle, and um, the guy sitting on top of that. I uh, can't pronounce his last name. It was a long Dutch name, but he uh, recently died, mm-hmm. and uh, he's. He was a, a, an, e, an E5. He was one of our squad leaders. And I, I got to tell you a funny story about um, Sergeant. I, I want him to, I'm going to mispronounce his name. If I do, I'm sorry to his family. They hear this. I think it was un, Underdahl. Okay. Um, we just called him Arch. And he had a, a roommate. They were both E5s. They were fortunate that they had little built rooms within our hooch. And a good friend of mine um, went and got a monkey little spider monkey and he named him zip and it was just sort of a pet you know why would you want a monkey jim well that was jim so okay fine <laughs> so we went on our platoon went out on patrol one day and when we came back it turns out that the monkey had gotten loose wherever jim had him got loose went into their little cubicle area their little bunk area and so on and crapped on everything in sight <laughs> so they came back 
went into their little hoot and just came out of there screaming, where is that son? You know, they were running all over the hooch trying to catch this monkey, and this monkey is just doing the after thing, you know. It was, standing back, it was hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. Again, it seems like, yeah. When is that ever? When else is that ever going to happen in your life? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not like a normal coming of age story. You'll reach time when one of your friends gets no. a monkey, and it's like that's a one and done. That's that happens, right. and it's you have that story. That's right. That's right. It, it's. Uh... <laughs> oh boy! But you know, it's funny that you you relive those moments, and I, and I know when you were talking uh, with Captain Albrecht uh, during his interview, he made the comment about gallows humor. Mm-hmm. Well, essentially that was. I mean, you're out there every day and you're facing death, and, and for most people don't realize that, that during 1972, the Easter offensive, um, when they sent a bunch of us down to Saigon to help bolster up the defenses and so on and so forth, that the North Vietnamese were, at that point, really closing in, and um, the refugees that were pouring, I mean, literally pouring into Saigon, made it just such an untenable situation uh, to govern that area. And you had people, they talk about tent cities and so on during the Depression in the United States. It, it was just massive all over all over Saigon, people living in car, what we see the homeless here. Yeah. Uh, they were selling their kids into prostitution Jeez. and just going through, oh, it's horrible. Um, huge piles of garbage from restaurants or whatever people would sift through them to get something to eat um, so it's you know we have a homeless problem here but you can imagine you've got all this war going on on the outskirts and people are just pouring in from where they, they're trying to escape the war and it was just um, the, the Saigon just swelled Jesus. and they had a very very dangerous day. Jesus God is is um on that picture that's that's you right leaning back the m sixteen yeah yeah being cool yeah, yeah. just looking you're looking cool as shit man that is you're looking like a boss there right if you had social media back then that would definitely be your profile picture that's definitely how you'd learn the ladies right you'd be ch- chilling and numb <laughs> that that's it yeah just just kicking it, as one of my nephews would say. Yeah, just but kicking it. Once again, the, once again, the interesting thing about something like that is when you, if you show the other picture of there's three or four of us around a Jeep with the M60s yep. in the background. Yep, I just uh, pulled it up. I can tell you, you know, I've talked to them since then, like, do you remember what we were doing there? No, nah, I really don't. We were just spec fours. We were told, you're going with this convoy over here. There you go. Yeah. Just uh-huh. don't ask Got any it. questions. Yeah. yeah. Military police, 716 MB, MPBN police. Battalion. Battalion, okay. He got a big old, yeah, M60 mounted on the back of that Jeep. Good Lord. What are you leaning on? Is that a big antenna? Yeah, for the radio. Yeah. Yep. Big whip antenna for the radio. Do those days just blend together? Yeah, you forget the but forget about it. And next day you move on to the next whatever you do on the next day, and and so on and so forth. And um, it's just okay. What do I need to do to get through this day? Yeah. Now, is there? Do you reach any point again with all of my experience in combat, right? But do you reach a point where I would imagine you go from like a constant terror, like I would be in? Do you reach this point of just? you know what, I'm probably not going to live? And is that just liberating? Are you just like, let's do today. Let's fuck it. Let's go do today. When I when I got to Vietnam, I, I got to back up, get out of high school, did a semester or two of college, realized I wasn't real, wasn't cut out for college at that time. Yeah, I was 18 years old, uh, came from a, a military family. My dad was retired military and was a POW in World War II and all this. So there were certain things that were expected of you, especially since you're the oldest son. So, and college is not working for me. So I went down uh, to the recruiter, an Army recruiter in Hayward, California, and I said, hey, I, I'm thinking about joining the Army. And he was, oh, okay, well, I can help you out with that, certainly. What would you like to do? And I knew that I wanted to go into law enforcement because my dad had owned some businesses 
And a lot of people, a lot of policemen, one of them was a restaurant, they would come in there for meals and, and I would get to talk to them because my dad always let them sit in the back so they wouldn't be bothered. And I thought, man, that is a fascinating job. And this is the time that Dragnet was on TV and Adam 12 and all these police shows. And man, that looks like a really neat job. So I sort of decided that's what I want to do. And so I went down and the recruiter said, well, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to uh, uh, go to the military police and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here to volunteer for Vietnam. And he looked at me and he goes, really? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, if you score high enough on your battery of tests, I can get you in the military police. I can't guarantee you Vietnam. Long story short, scored high enough on the test, went through basic training, get to MP school, and we're all standing around waiting for our final orders. You've done everything. You've graduated reformation and the drill sergeant I'll never forget this drill sergeant LaHervier still senior drill sergeant LaHervier is reading off this list of names alphabetically and he's going A, B, blah, 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 RVN after every name, RVN, RVN, RVN and finally we're looking at each other what the heck is RVN and somebody said Sergeant LaHervier, excuse me you know, what do you want? what's RVN stand for? and Sergeant uh, drill sergeant LaHervier goes the Republic of Vietnam, you're all going to Vietnam and at that point at that point, it sinks in. Really? Um, okay. And so you, your next stop is Fort Lewis, Washington. Boom, boom, boom. You're in Da Nang, and here you are. Well, let, let me let me back up to that one photograph that you showed. Sure. Where I, my first day in Vietnam, you can't see it, but the replacement station was built on a rice paddy, and <laughs> the um, mosquitoes had. A, I was a buffet. And they had bitten me so many times, one of my, it was swollen shut. The only good thing about that is that it got me out of filling sand bays the next day because I couldn't see. Go <laughs> 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 do what you want to do, Moffat, but uh, you, you can't, you're not going to be any good to help. You can't see with one eye. So, so that, that was, that's one of those welcome, welcome to Vietnam stories. Yeah, Jesus. That's, you're all coming to Vietnam. That would make me shit my pants. That would straight up, I would, I would shit myself. But, you know, at 19 years old, raised in a military family, I was actually yeah. born on a military installation. It's, it's like, it's expected of you. Yeah. And my dad was very conservative. And, um, you know, I thought Walter Cronkite was a communist and that we should be doing everything we could to defeat these commies and so on. So you're, that's yeah. instilled in you. Yeah. And so, and remember, I went to the recruiter in Hayward, and I said, I want to volunteer, and he said, I can't guarantee you that. Well, lo and behold, here you are. You you, you got your wish. Yeah. And it was not a disappointment. It was actually, I was excited about it. And I remember when we got to Fort Lewis, there was some scuttlebutt that uh, they may change some of the orders. And, and me and a couple of other guys were like, Man, I don't want them to change my order. I, st- I want to go to Vietnam. I want to That's what was happening. That was the exciting sure. thing for an 18 or 19-year-old. Granted, there were a lot of people that would have done anything on this planet not to have to go. I yeah. got that. That That's between them and their conscience. Yeah. But my decision was, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go. I, I, I want to do this. I was very patriotic. Um, I want to go. And, I want to go and defend my country, and if necessary, I'll die. I'll die for the defense of South Vietnam. It wasn't until um, I was on my first patrol with a senior MP that we went to the shooting. I went to the scene of a shooting, and you actually see dead bodies. And I had to go with some Vietnamese to try and track down these guys that were supposedly had done it. And I'm literally standing in a swamp with these Vietnamese, and they're talking Vietnamese, and I didn't understand a word. And that's when I made up my mind, I'm not dying for these people. Life is too precious to me to die for these people. If somebody else wants to do it, knock yourself out. I'm going to do everything I can to go home. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't do stupid things. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine there's that feeling of, you know, and again, in all of my wisdom, you know, I feel like if it was like fighting the Nazis or the Japanese, it would be like I'm defending my country from like annihilation from these people. I feel like if I was in Vietnam, I'd be very much so like, what the hell am I doing? Like, why am I here? You know, that's 
and I could see to put myself in your mind, I could see that whole I'm not dying for them. Like I'll be here, but I'm not dying for them. Yep. Yeah, that yep. order's yeah. a little too tall. It, it's back in the '60s. There was a there was a parody of uh, Guster's Last Stand, and it's a song you can pull it up on YouTube. And in the uh, song, the guy goes, "Please, Mister Custer, what am I doing here?" Yeah. And, and after what that feeling? Okay, what am I doing here? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's a question. Yeah, why am I? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I got it. I think I got it. Um, next picture is, uh, and I think you walked me through this one on the phone. It's um, it's the guy on the motorcycle with his two kids in front and two kids oh. in back. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that um, if you spend any time, if you got into any cities, Da Nang, Way, or any Saigon or any of the major cities, the Honda ninety was the most popular mode of transportation for the South Vietnamese. Sure. And here's this guy, and he's got, what, like five kids yeah. loaded onto this Honda Indy. Every single, yeah. yeah. And I, it was like, you didn't even pay attention to it after a while. Yeah. It's like, oh, man. Yeah. Looks like he's got some aviators Slow. on. Yeah. Two sons in front, oh, yeah. daughters in back. Just cruising. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. The next one is, um, you said, what were, they, what were these called again? They're not the APCs. They're the... They're the yeah, I'll pull it up so you can oh, see. Oh, V one hundred. Yeah, these guys. I don't know if you can see it. V one hundred. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What does it say? Uh, something America on it. CPT. Captain right? America. Captain America. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. They the particular V one hundred that I was assigned to was Thor's hammer. Okay. And you know, the, you could the guys would name them all sort of one. I remember seeing one that was something like powered by Budweiser or, you know, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. And unit commander gave you a lot of leeway with stuff like that, as long as it didn't get too far out of hand. But yeah. Most of the guys were, you know, pretty good. The Batmobile or yeah. something like this, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do those things look like they're built like tanks. Can those things stop a pretty oh, big round? Oh, my gracious, yeah, they're- yeah, the interesting thing about it, if you see the development of them, they are, um, it looks like two two V's that come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not flat. Um, and they, they did that because the, an RPG, yeah. a rock-propelled grenade, Whoa. go through certain types of vehicles, but these were designed specifically because there's no flat surface to where if you had a direct hit from an RPG, it would in all likelihood glance off. Yeah. That's insane. That's, I mean, unless you hit one of those tires, right? Uh, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> and then you, you know, you turn around with your M60s and your 40 millimeter uh, grenade launchers and do your thing. Light them up, yeah. Yeah, it's just like a subtle hindsight. Eh, I suppose, right? <laughs> just, yeah, maybe if they hit us, it's. Just kind of brush that yeah. one off, right? It's just that... That's what I'm saying, man. There's got to be, like, a certain amount of, like, cool. And maybe that's not the right word. But from my mind, that's what it seems like, is there's a certain amount of, like, kicking it. That's like, maybe they do. Maybe they don't. You know? Shit happens. I, you know, and I think one of the things, too, is after a while, you just accept the reality of where you are. Sure. And what's going on. Yeah. And it's not a, it's not a shock. It's not a shock anymore. It's just what it is, as mm-hmm. we would say today. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I said, the the first uh, body I saw, the first dead guy that I saw, I was like, oh wow. Yeah. And then after that, it was oh, really. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Oh well. Yeah. That's um. Uh, there, there's a there's a term that you need to learn. It's sinloi. X i n l o i. And every Viet, every guy that served in Vietnam knows what Sinloy means. It's like, mm, sorry about that. It sucks to be you. What is what is it? X I N X I L O I Sinloy. Yeah, it's pro- yeah. it's pronounced S I N, but it's it's spelled X I N Sinloy. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it just kind of sucks to suck, I- right? I even have the guys in my office now when something goes wrong, I'll say, mm, Sinloy. Yeah. <laughs> young, young kids, young kids, they've never been in the military, they're all, eh, Sinloy. Yeah, sucks, <laughs> yeah. sucks to suck, right? It's, 
Yeah, sometimes that's just it, right? It's I think um yeah. I can't remember his name, the guy that that wrote All Quiet on the Western Front. He talked about he was like it didn't matter like it's like sure you could like keep your head down in the trenches and you know, you could look out for bombs and stuff, but he's like it didn't it really didn't matter how attentive you were to things because at any given moment an artillery shell could fall out of the sky and just hit your position. It may, right. it might, maybe it wasn't even aimed at you. It was fired a minute ago, and you just so happened to be walking that way. Is it? And he was like, you'd go to the bathroom, or you'd yeah, you'd go out into the woods and take a shit, and you'd come back, and where all your buddies were just playing cards. Now they're all dead, right? And yeah. it's like yeah. you just kind of a certain amount of you, you just sort of tune it out. Your brain's like, this is too insane to grasp. So it's just like, well, I guess it's not my day. Right. Yeah, yeah. You, there were there were there were times when you, you said, okay, fine, whatever, whatever happens, happens. Um, and, and as we talked about before, when you were away from that secure area, or what you perceive to be a secure area, and you're out with the South Vietnamese or the Vietnamese nationals or even if you're on a patrol with convoy escort or whatever you're doing, um, that's when the time you, you, your senses become a little more heightened. Mm. And then at night, as they would say, nighttime belonged to Charlie, um, and, and you were off in some Arvin compound or North or South Vietnamese compound or something like this, you became a little more aware because, uh, I'll be honest with you, Tommy, you didn't completely trust the South Vietnamese that you were working with, you always had to keep them just a little bit leery of everything that's going on. Now, I will say that I worked with some South Vietnamese military police that were just absolutely top-notch, mm-hmm. just cream of the crop. They were, in some respects, better than some American GIs I worked with. Sure. I worked with some South Vietnamese national police that were the same way, really dedicated individuals. I worked with other others that you just really didn't trust them. Uh, not not so much because they may be Arvins in the morning and Viet Cong at night, but they just didn't have the tenacity. They just didn't have the drive that uh, some of the other South Vietnamese had. And so you didn't get the respect, and you really didn't want to go on patrols with them if you had your druthers. Yeah. You, hey, let me go with one of the guys that I worked with. His name was Chu, C-H-U. And I, I loved going on patrol with him and some of his guys because they were just top-notch guys, and I didn't mind going on patrol with them at all. Yeah, um, I actually got to meet his family. They lived in this little village, and, and we left Long Bend, and we drove out to this little little village, and it was primitive. Yeah. The grass huts, the whole ten yards, and they had, had a little fence built where the family hog was i mean they lived with the family pig yeah. and i'm looking at this and i think and it is primitive this is primitive but yeah that was it jesus yeah it's just just, just in the day yeah and, but you know what they were gi's referred to coming home as united states you know what the united states was referred to the world uh, when you when you go back to the world when you go back to the world, oh shit! And you say, when are you going home? When are you going back to the world? Oh shit! I've never heard that. That's, but I guess that makes sense, yeah. right? You're going back to society. When you're going back to the world, Jesus! And the airplane, the airplane taking you home was called the Freedom Bird. The Freedom Bird. What was? Yeah. What was? How? How did you? This is a stupid question. How did you get there? Is it plane or is it ship? Early troops went on ship. They uh, they would mobilize like whole divisions, like the 25th Division out of uh, Hawaii. They would go ship. Uh, my brother-in-law, when he went, um, he was a combat en- engineers, and they went over on ships. And but when I went over, and later they just put us all on um, flying tigers, or I do remember United Airlines and so on. But we flew over and made a couple stops, so we wound up in Da Nang. That's insane. How long does it take to get there? Is it? It's not one flight, right? You're not on a. You're not like on a seven forty seven. Um, I know. Coming back, we were. We flew. Like I said, we left Fort Lewis, Washington. I cannot remember the time. We left that at a SeaTac, Seattle, Tacoma. Went to Japan. Next stop, 
thing. So that was all in one day. Boom, boom, boom. Did, did you get a chance to, to watch the video of Escape from Firebase Cape? I watched a video. I don't know if I watched one you're, okay. you're referring the one, to. The one, the one, yeah, the one with Captain Albrecht. Yeah, I saw a video of him talking. Yeah. There, there's a, a portion of the of that video of that documentary, Escape from Firebase Cape. Towards the end of it, one of the guys that was at Firebase Cape makes a comment that one day you, you're here on Firebase Cape, the next day you're back at your base camp, and the next day you're standing in the United States. It was that quick. I mean, you, you literally when when we came back, we were wearing jungle fatigues, and I came back in those. December, January, whatever it was, December, late December uh, of that year. And even in California, it still gets cold and you're sitting there, ooh, 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 you know. But yeah. that that's how rapid that, that it was. And as, as this one guy puts it, there's no time to decompress. Yeah. You go from zero to 100 in 60 seconds, boom. Yeah. Yeah, that's got to be a that's gotta be a psychological, like, kick to the nuts, right? You're just back home all of a sudden. It's like... You know, it's just like you just woke up. Like what? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the interesting things about it was you develop um, some of the the language of of the Vietnamese, and you would incorporate that into your everyday English. Like, um, for instance, you know, when you were joking joking with somebody and they were doing something stupid, you said, "Man, you're boo-boo dicky down." That means you're really crazy. Um, and so you come home and people would say something and you say, man, you're taking out. And they'd look at you like, what? Like, what? The- Not real. Yeah, you just spoke Vietnamese to them and they didn't, they didn't have a clue. And I remember this one time, the, the Vietnamese word for lie, as in you're not telling the truth, is sow. Uh, like we would say a female pig sure. is sow. And, uh, um, I, I, I was sitting there with my uh, sister, my brother-in-law, and a group of other people. I just finished watching a California Golden Seals hockey game. And we were at this place. Uh, it's like the, the, the place to go after the games. And there was a young girl sitting there. I mean, she was a young lady, probably in her early, mid-20s. And her aunt and uncle were sitting there. And she said something to me. And I jokingly said, man, you sow. I jokingly meant that you're not telling me the truth. And... <laughs> Everybody thought I called her a pig. <laughs> what did you call her a pig for? Oh, I, no, oh, I didn't. I didn't yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, shit. That, that was, yeah. You sow. I'm going to start saying yeah. that. You sow. You sow. You sow. Sin loy. Sin loy. You sow. Start putting, I'll start putting my twist up. You sow. Sin loy. Sorry about that, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, GI. It's very, very common. Yeah. Yeah. And Vietnam veterans today, when they're talking with each other, will throw in uh, or, um, you know, words like that that, that we all knew. Yeah. Um, that it's just, uh, just part of the experience. Yeah. That's insane. Ken, I got to go to the bathroom real quick. Uh, if you got to go, you can go. Sure. Or, or you can monologue if you want. No, up, up, I'm good. up to you. All right, Ken. Well, I'm tasking you with monologuing. Just talk to whoever's listening. Well, I can't imagine there are a whole lot of people listening at this point. But sitting here in Illinois, um, it's about 40 degrees. Um, looking out over my 10 acres of land, a couple of horses, uh, a couple of hay fields, trees way in the back. It's it's a slice of God's country. Unfortunately, Illinois is covered by a pig um, who thinks that he is a dictator, trying to lock everything down. Um, a lot of people leaving Illinois for that very reason. We actually are on scheduled to lose one, maybe two congressional seats because people are fleeing Illinois to get away from the socialist government in Springfield. Um, but other than that, spring, summer, and fall, it's very nice. Winters are cold and be brutal. Uh, a lot of snow, ice, and so on. But uh, as I said, spring, summer, and fall, it's, it's actually very, very pleasant here. Um, spring and summer, summer especially reminds me a lot of Vietnam because it's very hot, very humid and living out in the country the insects are well, they rival Vietnam let me put it to you that way so my wife hates it during the spring and or the summer and fall but it is what it is we are back 
in the saddle. I have the uh, bladder of a pregnant woman, so she's got to excuse me. Um, so this is another one of, of you near the back of a Jeep with a big antenna. It looks like the same same Jeep, actually, from a different angle. Yeah, some badass mustache. Um, yeah, I was going to say, going to Oakland, and let's go back to the police. Yeah, going to Oakland, you said in a lot of ways it was worse. I mean, I've, again, just in my broad brushes, I feel like part of it's got to be if you're Vietnam, you know, and you think something happened over there, you can just empty a clip into that area. And if it's really bad, you know, just call in some napalm. But, like, you're in Oakland, and it's like someone did something and ran behind a liquor store. You can't shoot, like, a 40 millimeter over there. It's like, it's like fuck, we got to go over there and actually do police work, right? As much as you might want to. <laughs> All the covert guns will end this right now. Um True. It's funny you mentioned that, you know, we're watching these riots from these idiots up in Kenosha and Seattle and stuff like that. Me and a couple of buddies were talking, just sending a Cobra gunship and that thing would be over in about 30 over, seconds. Over in a minute. Yeah. Over in a minute. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. You have one bad day of fighting. And, take a big yeah. If you have one bad day of fighting, these riots will stop in an afternoon. Right? Because right now it's a bunch of people well, look just at, pushing. It, if you look at the history back of the, the riots back in after Martin Luther King when he was killed in Detroit and so on, um, they ended it pretty quickly because they didn't tolerate, uh, you know, there was burning, burning and looting and so on. They didn't put up with that nonsense. National Guard came in and put it down. Yeah. Um, but we have a bunch of politicians that are more concerned about their image uh, and getting rid of Donald Trump than yeah. they are about protecting the you know, citizens yeah. of this country. Yeah. You got a bunch of fucking communists trying to usurp the country. And it's, you know, we got to, oh, we got to give them space. We got to, this is, you know, hey, property isn't as important as lives. And it's like, dog, that's very easy to say from your ivory tower. But what if that's your bicycle shop that just caught a Molotov through the back window? Right? Have you ever heard the expression, um, the expression, National Guard 4 can't say nothing? No. That was, you're familiar with the Kent State riots when sure. four uh, students, well, out of that rose, it's like a baseball score. National Guard 4, Kent State nothing. Oh, I thought you said can't say nothing. Kent State nothing. Jesus. Gallows <laughs> humor, gallows humor. You gotta have it, yeah, right? It's the only way to get through it. Whew. It's, uh, wasn't yeah. it, I think that was what Bill Hicks, the comedian, said about, like, Operation Desert Storm. He was like, you know, he was like, American casualties, 88, or 78, Iraq, 600,000. 88 to 600,000, that means we could have sent 89 guys, and there'd be one guy coming back in a solo ticker tape parade, going, I did it! <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's, um... Where's my trophy? Yeah, trophy? exactly. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna crack eventually. You can only... People are only going to take this for so long when, and now nothing. We're seeing it now. Yeah, it, you're, yeah it's yeah. Now. Your Kyle Rittenhouse was just the first. You're going to see people. Oh my God! Start defending themselves, and it's going to be. It's my hope is that I don't hope for violence. What I hope is that there's one day of violence and everyone calms down. Right? It's you know it's like the. It's you know it's the it's the sheriff firing the gun in the air and everyone stops fighting. Maybe that's what needs to happen. Is this shit needs to go to the brink, and some people just lose their cool and lose their lives, and hopefully the whole nation will calm down. That's what I hope because I don't see any other way of it relaxing. I don't hope for anyone to die, but if that does happen, I think it will prevent a lot more from happening down the road. Does that make sense? <sighs> It does. I think the unfortunate part of this, though, is that the Democrat left has gone so far off the cliff with these lemmings that they will side with the rioters, yeah. as we saw in Canada, as we saw in Seattle, as we saw in Portland. We saw in D.C. The, the last week. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, the good guys or the citizens just going about their business are going to be 
they're the bad guys because they don't side with those of us that want total power, total control. I live in Illinois. I, I, I see it every day. Um, I actually work for a state legislator, and so we get kind of the inside stuff. And the governor of Illinois is not a leader, he's a reactor. Mm-hmm. And whatever some other, but you know, okay, well, that worked in Michigan. I'll do it here. He just implemented a lockdown. But the interesting thing about it is um, Saturday we had 13 people over my house. We, My wife and I celebrated uh, Thanksgiving all by herself, and it was so nice, so quiet. And Saturday the locust came over and descended on our house, and 13 people with no mask. Some of them were from the Chicago area which is Pritzker said, you guys can't do that. Oh, yeah, watch this. Yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of, it's called civil disobedience. That's the kind of stuff you're going to start seeing more and more and more of. Yeah. Um, yeah, when we go to the store, we were, I, I wear the mask just to avoid the hassle. But I don't avoid crowds. I don't avoid, uh, you know, I'm safe. I do what I should do to protect myself and so on and so forth. But I'm still going to live my life. I'm, I'm not um, going to be chained yeah. Uh, anywhere, as some governor decides that this is a cool thing to do for power. It's a power grab. Control. It's a power grab, and nothing more. I mean, it's I've, absolutely. I've I've all but stopped. I'm not I'm not playing the COVID game anymore. I just don't give a shit. Yeah. I just don't give a. F- I, well, I just don't. I just I don't care. Yeah, I've talked to so many people that when the news comes, they just flip the news off. It's just overkill. Yeah. Well, notice notice how it went from deaths. Notice how they went from deaths, and then once deaths started dropping off dramatically, which they have, now they only report on cases, not deaths. So now it's 200,000 new cases. Well, fucking yeah, it's a fucking flu. It's going to go. And that doesn't mean that it's not real. I understand people are dying. But, at a, I mean, the WHO, the World Health Organization, came out, like, what, a month ago and said lockdowns don't work. And they said the reason is, yeah. get this, is because the the precautionary measure we take from the virus can't have worse effects than the virus itself. So the WHO is yeah. now against lockdowns. But you can yeah. see why well, that was we'll never the cause. It was the real reason for lockdowns. I mean, just say it. It's, it's a power grab. You are now, you have these yeah. people that just get off the power, and now they can tell you when you, where you can and can't go? You know, real quickly, Tommy, sure. my, I gotta go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About dead, yeah I got you. You look, those of us that, I lived in the Bay Area during the, the height of the AIDS crisis. We didn't lock down on AIDS, and AIDS was a dead, you get AIDS, that's it, oh, there is no cure. Yeah. And, and that was a political disease. And it for because they did not want to alienate the homosexuals. Yeah. Because in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Berkeley, all these major cities out there, Houston and all these other cities where the homosexuals congregate, they have such a powerful voting block. And especially in San Francisco, we're not going to do anything to alienate a voting block. Who gets out there and will demonstrate, will riot, and so on and so forth. So AIDS was treated like, well, okay, fine. We, we, you, know, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. If you get it, eh, well, it's not a good thing. But here you have a disease, a virus that is no, and I don't believe the numbers, but it's no worse than the flu. And more people die from the flu than they have COVID. But we're going to close the country because of this. And it's all, I believe, it's all political. Just it like AIDS was. It absolutely is. It's, um, it's like that. It's like that meme where everyone's saying, despite 2016, everyone being like, we got to investigate the election now, despite there being evidence of massive voter fraud. Yeah. They're like, we don't need a, I think some quote I saw was like, uh, the percentages of voting fraud are vanishingly low. We can't let this, uh, we can't let this change the way we do life. And someone's like, isn't that kind of like the death rate of COVID is vanishingly low? <laughs> it's a, uh, but yeah. Or <laughs> Quote the uh, the bandito in treasure this year, Madre. Uh, we don't need no stinking investigations. Yeah, exactly. Right. You have, it's, you have to watch. Yeah, yeah, you have to watch the movie to understand it. But um, at any rate, um, well, I appreciate the time, and it was kind of fun reminiscing. Hell yeah, man! Um, and so, thanks for doing it. Maybe we can. Maybe we'll we'll figure out Zoom next time, and we we won't be yeah, dependent. Yeah, we won't be dependent on on phone life or battery life of your phone i forgot you're on your phone i'm on my laptop doing this but yeah man let's definitely do another one let's uh let's get captain albrock to join us 
Yeah, I'll talk to Bill. Uh, that could be a fun one. Probably see. Yeah, probably see him next week. Yeah, and we can. Uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Let's try to put something together. I think let's try to put one together before Christmas or something. I'll talk to him. All right, that would be awesome. All right, man, Ken Moffat, thank go. thank you so much for doing it, and thanks for sharing the stories. And um, yeah, until next time, man, I'll shoot you a text and let's uh, let's put one together. All right, Tommy. I look forward to the link, and I got some friends waiting to see it. All right, my man. All right, Ken. Take it easy, buddy. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Recording. We are recording. Mr. How do I say your last name? Note to self, stop asking people how to say their last name after I start recording. And you just start asking people before I start recording, because it's the first thing I say. It's, how do I say your last name? It's Moffitt? Moffat, that's it. All right. Well, how about you introduce yourself, Mr. Moffat? My goodness, uh, uh, Ken Moffat. Um, uh, I have worn many hats throughout my career. Uh, obviously, military, military police, Vietnam, 18th Brigade, uh, several different companies. Um, started out, uh, everybody, I guess, started out a replacement station. Went down to a replacement station outside of Benoit, and from there we got our orders to disperse throughout the country. Um, I went to the 650th MP Company, which was headquartered at Long Bend, um, they also LBJ, uh, sort of a. Can, but, uh, I was fortunate. Can, can you sit a little closer, Mr. Moffat? The, the audio is chopping in and out. Um, I was fortunate that I was not the 95 Charlie, which was the stockade guards. I was a, my MOS was 95 Bravo. That's what it was called back then, which was a line MP. We went out and did patrols and all that kind of fun stuff. And um, it was an interesting year. Let me put it to you that way. Uh, for an 18 to 19 year old, it was a very interesting year. Yeah. One that I wouldn't back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> differently about it but i wouldn't take the year back yeah well so so what what all is because this is what we initially spoke about on the phone and you and i have talked a lot on the phone but i want to save this for the podcast is um because as 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 i've said to guests on the phone before um i like to uh save the conversation so it's a genuine episode what all does military police entail Military police, uh, well, I'll speak with, uh, about a wartime situation and then we can go into the civilian or the um, stateside aspect of it since I did both. In a wartime situation, you literally do a little bit of everything. Um, I knew guys that were uh, wound up being door gunners on helicopters. Um, some guys, they were just, we need guys for this, we need guys for that. Um, and since military police were trained in your basic infantry, which everybody goes through in basic combat, at um, your, wherever you do your basic, then you go to AI, your advanced individual training, and mine was military police. But there you're taught to use uh, just about, if not every weapon, that Army arsenal has. Um, and so you're able to do many different things, many different facets whether it's patrolling, river patrols, uh, once again, this is Vietnam, river patrols, um, POWs, convoy escorts, prisoner escorts. I mean, it was, you could have, like, today you're doing patrols, tomorrow, you know, your company is sending you out to do this, that, or the other. Tomorrow you're gonna do some convoy escorts. Uh, we have some prisoners, which turn them over to South Vietnamese and so on. So it was a lot of stuff that was done. And, and I'll be honest with you, for a 19-year-old, it was exciting because you were doing so many things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as, as uh, Sherman once said, uh, war is hell, but then there's those periods when you, there's a, that downtime, you, you just kind of kick back and, and think about uh, the day's events and, and hang out with your buddies and so on. Yeah. Now, I've always I've always thought if I was in like war, not even necessarily combat, but if I was always just stationed somewhere far from home, Vietnam, Iraq, whatever, 
in my mind, I would be in a constant terror during the downtimes, thinking, is this my last day? Am I going to get hit with a mortar round? Am I going to X, Y, Z? Is that the case, or do you do you kind of block that out? You know, I, I think it pertains, or pertains to exactly where you are and given your situation, uh, what you're sta- where you're stationed, um, what your unit assignments are. There were times when um, we were not back at our base, Long Den, that we were out doing patrols where we would have to spend nights with these Vietnamese military national police, uh, the Quincon as the Vietnamese military police were called, and the national police were called Kansats, or we jokingly called them the white mice. Um, and and it, you you did go into a different frame of mind when you were away from something that was relatively secure. Mm-hmm. And, and I do remember spending nights um, with the Vietnamese MPs and the national police, and yeah, it get very scary because you did not have that surrounding um, security that you normally had. It was you and and the, the, the yeah. Um, the downtime. It was just downtime. The the audio on this is really really screwing up. Do you do you mind if I if I fa- do you mind if I FaceTime you? No, go ahead. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna end this because that it's it's Zoom is just really screwing it up, and I don't want to. Uh, yeah, I don't want it to be. I don't want it to not record good audio. So I'm gonna face I'm gonna FaceTime you. Okay. All right. All right. Let's see. Stop and sorry for everyone listening. Zoom is shit in the bed, but it's no worries. We have technology. We have.